Welcome to the Mouthy IP Podcast, where we discuss infection prevention for the busy dental profession. The Mouthy IP Podcast is created by Nebraska ICAP, Infection Control Assessment and Promotion Program, and is funded by the Nebraska DHHS HAI team via a CDC grant. Each podcast features experts discussing current infection prevention topics and answers to questions asked by dental professionals from Nebraska. Welcome, everybody. We're having our second podcast of the Mouthy IP. Today, we have our uh, cast of uh, usual characters. Uh, we have Kate Tyner, Sarah Stream, Dr. Richard Hankins, Dr. Nada Fadul. Uh, today, we are going to talk about myth busting. Uh, and we don't have anything that we're blowing up or the like, but uh, this is about myth busting of infection outbreaks in dentistry. Uh, last podcast, we had a voicemail that somebody had left. Uh, this time we did receive a call, but the individual did not want her voice recorded. So in place, Kate is going to uh, discuss or kind of uh, uh, mention how the call came about and what the individual said. So thank you, Dan. Um, and thank you everybody for joining us today. This um, case involves, um, you know, the story of an IP um, actually making rounds in a dental practice. And when you're making rounds in the dental practice, certainly you're going to run into kind of the non-believers, right? The people who want to challenge um, the, the way of, um, you know, the extra precautions, et cetera. And in this case, the provider challenged the infection preventionists and said, you know, I, I can get along with all these rules and things like that, but you just have to understand. Do you understand in dental that these, these outbreaks, they just don't really happen? You know, there was this famous case in Florida where this dentist was practicing and had um, HIV AIDS um, in the early 80s, and they could never figure out even how these patients got HIV. And so I just, you know, it, this story is just emblematic of these things just don't happen. You don't, it's the only case, this one in Florida where anybody even ever got HIV after being at a dentist and they could never even figure out how it happened. So it probably wasn't even anything in the practice. And he kind of went on and on with this. And um, so the IP was, you know, like, how do you, how do you address a challenge like that? And so that's what we're going to talk about today is um, kind of busting those myths. Of, you know, the, it just doesn't happen here. It's not possible. It's not worth the effort. Um, and so the first idea with that would be that transmission does not happen. And um, I think the, the group on the call today, we, we pulled lots of cases of, you know, these outbreaks of bloodborne pathogens do happen in dental, um, in the dental environment. HIV is not the most common infection. Hepatitis B is a lot more common. Um, and it's so common, that is why dental practitioners um, are mandated to get hepatitis B vaccination or to formally decline it. You have to have education of your employees um, that if they decline that very important vaccine, um, they need to you know, legally sign that they understand the risks. And so Sarah, can you comment on the prevalence at least of hepatitis B vaccine um, in dentistry? Sure. So like Kate mentioned before, it is mandated by OSHA that employees are provided that vaccine. 
Um, I know, um, you know, I was lucky enough that my mom was an RN growing up. So I had the vaccine when I was like 12. It was never an issue as far as that um, goes for me personally, but I do know a lot of people who have refused to get the vaccine. Um, they just have general vaccine hesitancy. Um, but in the dental office, because there is such a high risk of exposure because of the practices and procedures that we are doing on a daily basis, it is mandated by OSHA. And if you don't get that vaccine, you have to be um, educated on what could potentially happen and sign that declination waiver. So when you talk about risk, Sarah, something I think that's important of, you know, and I, I'll bet Dr. Fadul and Dr. Hankins can speak to this, but um, the highest in all of healthcare, we look at risk, especially percutaneous injuries or like poking into injuries, right? Where you could get poked with a sharp object or a needle. Those things are most likely to occur in a tight space, especially where the practitioner can't see their hands. And so in the hospital, for example, a lot of times that's like um, surgery procedures, right? Like cardiothoracic surgery. Um, but in dentistry, clearly this is a very high risk place, right? The mouth is small, dark. Um, it will be very hard to see everything that you're doing. And so it really meets the letter of that um, high risk. Yeah. And, you know, even for a large majority of procedures that we do that you wouldn't think would cause bleeding in the patients, they do, you know, you, you do a filling and you have to put a matrix band in there and it cuts the gum tissue and, you know, there's some bleeding going on. So even on some of those, um, like the lower risk procedures, there is still the possibility of patient's blood being in that field that you're working in. So not only, you know, the, the percutaneous injury type stuff, but you're just exposed to that generally. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, when we talk about infection prevention, I think those of us who have practiced for a long time, the easiest way to sway people is to first convince them of the risk to themselves, right? People are much more likely to wear gloves or wear a mask or things like that if they think they're protecting themselves. And gloves are really elegant and efficient solution because not only do they protect the healthcare worker, but if you have cuts on your hands or um, other infectious diseases that could be transmitted by your hands, um, you're also protecting the patient. And so those are things that you might not think about on a day-to-day -day basis, but to this person's question, how do I kind of react to that dentist? who you know, doesn't think that transmission occurs in dental, that would be one of the first things I would say is maybe you don't believe you could transmit something to a patient, but wouldn't you like to protect yourself? You know, um, There's lots of things that people carry in their mouth. Um, I think the, the number one thing that I would convince people at first is herpes, right? You know, I, I don't want to, <laughs> you can get herpes on your hands and I, that would affect your practice forever. Um, but you don't want to acquire that. So why wouldn't we do some of these basic precautions? That would be one way to address it. Well, Kate, when you talk about those cases and you talk about uh, some of the other things and, and, you know, you're referencing cases that were established and that were proved a long time ago, and it has to be a pretty significant outbreak in order for that to make the news. But you're right. I mean, you know, if you have uh, 20 people catching something, getting um, uh, an infectious disease from a dental practitioner, that 
is going to make the news. But if you have a dental hygienist or the like catching something from a patient, you know, if that's, you know, maybe just considered a, you know, hazard of the job, it's not going to be published. It's not going to be out there in the news stream. I totally agree with you, Dan. And even that would be, you know, people, things that people would not realize they had risk for outside of their work, right? Like, um, I probably got influenza because my kids are going to school and I was exposed to my kids or something like that. And maybe ignore the very prevalent risk of being, you know, within a foot of somebody's mouth. Um, the other thing that I think, um, just when we talk about human nature in general, I think people are really bad at understanding risk. You know, like I've never seen a dentist who got a bloodborne pathogen from a patient, or I've never seen another dental assistant who got sick at work, you know, no, everyone here is okay. So it must not happen. Um, and so I think that that that's an interesting topic that we I think kind of haunts infection control in general. And um, sometimes if I get that kind of argument from people, I might say something like, uh, have you ever gotten a foodborne illness from a restaurant, right? Um, well, no, I haven't. Okay, so then it's not important that the people who work at the restaurant should wash their hands. You've never seen it, it must not happen. Well, no, I want those people to wash their hands. And so I think it's like, you have to train people to think that way. Um, so yeah. I think that brings up really one of the biggest change. issues that, that Dan touched on there was really re reporting. And so are these people actually reporting things? Um, I feel like as we look at all of these cases that have been uh, reported about dental transmission exposures over the years, we're really looking at a tip of the iceberg. Um, we're looking at the outbreaks that had enough people that it was picked up by public health and then public health investigated and were able to, to narrow it back to, to dental practitioners. And so um, you're, you're looking at cases that had someone who was willing to reach out to public health, public health that was able to, to actually trace it back to uh, dental practitioners and there to be enough people. And so I'm sure that there's going to be uh, one-off cases that one, they're just not able to trace it back and figure out where it happened, but two, um, people that were reporting it. And uh, Kate, to what you were saying with uh, restaurants, I, I recently was involved in a situation where I had a gastrointestinal illness and I happened to, to know that uh, the group of people that I went to the rest, a restaurant with also had said issue. Um, and we were discussing, uh, like, oh, should we reach out to public health? Um, no one in, else in my group was interested in doing so. And so after a day or two, I finally took it upon myself, you know, I'll reach out to public health. Um, and I was already feeling better by the time, but I figured for the public health issue, I, I should do this. And so that was about two weeks ago. And I recently found out that uh, they looked into the restaurant that we were suspecting and found out that they had a much larger norovirus outbreak through that restaurant. And so I was thinking, you know, I deal with public health infection control all the time, but it really uh, was an, an issue that I was questioning about, oh, do I, do I make that step of reaching out to public health? And so I assume that that's an issue that a lot of people are dealing with. Um, especially when they don't know if, if someone contracted hepatitis B, contracted HIV, 
to reach to touch out, to reach out to public health and say, you know, I I contracted this and I'm concerned that I contracted this through a certain setting. I feel like that'd be a really tough step. Um, and so to have some cases of this uh, appearing published, occurring in dental settings, I think just shows us that there's a lot more to it that we're just unaware of. I think there's a stigma too. Dr. Um, Hankins, I think you really bring up very important barriers to reporting infection, especially when we think about bloodborne pathogens like hepatitis B and HIV. I think instantly, you know, we just haven't evolved to the point that people don't have a stigma necessarily when they think of it. And not only that, like those things can be transmitted sexually as well as through percutaneous injury, but also I think the idea if you're a healthcare worker, did I do something wrong? Was it my fault? It was my fault. Um, will my job be in danger if I acquired an infection? And um, if I make noise about it, A, I might lose my job. B, like I could really be in trouble. Like, did I hurt someone else? And I, that is um, part of that. I think in some ways people don't even recognize those things and push away some infection control practices just for that reason. I don't want to admit that I, I think those things are dangerous, you know, that, that, that I'm putting that in quotations. Um, but that's a really important facet of infection control. And I think to providers who are trying to do that in these practices, that's a really important thing of, um, you know, how we address our colleagues. I care about you. I want you to be safe. Um, so I want you to wear gloves. Um, or I care about you. I want you to be safe. I want you to wear eye protection when you're, you know, cleaning instruments, things like that, that, you know, it really starts with how you communicate um, the, the need to do these important things. And um, it's not that if you don't clean that right, you're going to give somebody HIV. Yikes. No, we don't want to address people like that, but we should talk about the risks and, you know, really come from a place of we care about our patients. We care about our colleagues. We're going to do everything possible for everyone um, so that nobody gets hurt. Um, gloves, you know, I, we keep referring to that. That seems like a really easy example, but something as simple as are gloves available at the point of use? Um, how often do you walk through your practice and find that the glove box is empty? Um, you know, and then somebody maybe, does that mean somebody shortcuts and they have to take extra steps or maybe they forego gloves because they couldn't find them that one time. And so a simple um, strategy, when you, you wanna be successful with having PPE available to everybody, it should not be everybody's job. Um, well, you should just refill it when it's empty. That's everybody's job. Well, unfortunately, when it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job. Nobody's accountable for that. And so we say in practice, we say, you know, it's better if you put that into a checklist and it's assigned to somebody on a routine basis. So for example, when you're opening up the practice in the morning, somebody is assigned and signs off on it that they walked around and they made sure the PPE was available and ready to go. Same with Sharps containers. You know, um, it's really important that we um, don't have to take extra steps when we have a sharps on a tray or in our hands. Um, we could hurt somebody that way. We could hurt ourselves. But what if the sharps container I'm going to is over full? Then now I, now I have to do something risky. The same idea with gloves boxes is for sharps containers. If it's not assigned to somebody, it's everybody's job. And sharps containers are particularly easy to be like, I'll get to that in a minute. So really it's something that let's assign it to a particular task list or person. At the beginning of the day, we say, if the sharps are above this line, replace them. If that is one person's job. And that way um, we know those things get done and we keep people safer. So those are really simple things 
that are very basic to practice that you can do to make infection control a little easier. Those are just some great points, Kate. Um, I wanna go back to um, what Dr. Hankins was talking about a little bit before with like barriers to reporting. Mm -hmm. And um, this is just me asking a question because I am not an infectious disease physician. That's why we have Dr. Hankins and Dr. Fadul on the show. Um, are there latent periods with some of these bloodborne pathogens that could prevent some sort of connection to a specific facility? Yeah, I think that that's a great question, Sarah. And that's actually could be a major reason why these infections are not reported. I mean, as an HIV provider, um, it's very rare for us to catch somebody at the acute infection time point because most of the time acute infection is not different than mono or the flu or common cold. And a lot of these patients go unrecognized and undiagnosed. By the time we catch somebody, it's either we did routine screening and or they're presenting at the time when they're having an opportunistic infection. And that's usually an average of 10 years after they acquired the infection. So it would be extremely hard to go back 10 years ago and trace how that infection happened. And same thing with hepatitis B, you know, 80% of people who acquire hepatitis B would clear the infection on their own. 20% uh, will progress to chronic hepatitis B. So for those 20%, uh, it would be extremely hard to go back and figure out how they acquired hepatitis B unless at the time we were actively investigating an outbreak. And this leads us to conclude that active surveillance is really the only way we come to reporting. If we found an outbreak and we're actively looking for cases, that's the time when we reported. But like Dr. Hankin said, most of these are the tip of the iceberg. And we have to remember, you know, a lot of these infections that we deal with are human to human transmission. You know, so whatever you bring two humans together, there is a chance for exposure and transmission. It doesn't matter if one of those humans is a dentist or a physician or a nurse or dental hygienist, as long as you're exposed to a source of infection, then there is a risk for, for infection. So as a dental practitioner, if you're dealing with sharp instruments uh, and there is a risk for exposure to blood-borne pathogen, then that risk for a dentist is nothing different than a risk for a proceduralist at the hospital working at the bedside, placing a central line or a, an, a, a nurse in the OR uh, you know, working with sharp instruments. So there is no reason for us to believe that the risk should be different for different practitioners when we're all dealing with an exposure hazard. Um, so it, that basically the bottom line is, you know, with these three infections, we're talking about the blood-borne pathogens. Whenever you have an exposure to blood, the risk is there. Highest was hepatitis B, like Kate mentioned, 30%. Hepatitis C, 3%. HIV is 0.3%. So the 33.3 rule that we always use in medicine is also applicable to dentistry. And I, I, it's hard for me to think about why would that be any different in that setting. Dr. Sadul, could you explain that a little bit more? The 33.3? Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess to the lay audience is that if you're, if you're dealing with a patient who has hepatitis B and you get an exposure, the chance of getting an infection from that is the highest compared to if that patient had HIV and with the same type of exposure. So hepatitis B is basically the most contagious of these blood-borne pathogens. 
followed by hepatitis C and followed by HIV. But even a 0.3 risk, 0.3, that's three in a thousand, that's still a substantial risk. Um, and it's definitely something that to be cautious about because all of these three infections could be lifelong uh, infections. So, and, and they have very substantial uh, complications. So I think you make great points about the transmissibility of hepatitis B, Dr. Fadul, and with that being that significant of a risk, that really shows why the vaccine for hepatitis B is so important. Um, in your experience, how effective is the vaccine for hepatitis B? It, it's pretty effective. And the nice thing about hepatitis B vaccine is actually uh, quantifiable. So there is a way to test for immunity for hepatitis B. So if you have a newcomer to your clinic and you're not certain if they had been vaccinated or not, it's an easy blood test to determine their immunity to hepatitis B. And if somebody failed the vaccine series, there is a way to test for that. And there is a way to go about revaccinating them. They're really good, clear guidelines from CDC and other agencies on how to do that. So the, it's the highest contagious one, but also the most preventable, which is really nice. Unfortunately for hep C and HIV, we don't have a vaccine yet, but there are ways, you know, primary prevention obviously works. So if you practice precautions and primary prevention, there are ways to prevent that. So for Dr. Hankins and Dr. Fadul, I think sometimes we talk about these bloodborne pathogens. Um, in daily life, it's very rare. I've never met somebody that I know who has hepatitis B, for example. I don't know what the clinical course of hepatitis B looks like. When we talk about the importance of preventing hepatitis B, what are some of the things that people with hepatitis B uh, suffer from? Kate, I'm not sure I, I follow. So we talk like it's easy for me, like when I'm talking to people about the COVID vaccine, for example, people get really sick with COVID are they can end up on a ventilator, they can die. So what is the clinic like what is hepatitis B? Um, what do when people are sick with hepatitis B? Uh, what are like the maladies that they suffer from when we're talking about you should get this vaccine because you don't want these things? Oh, they could get fulminant liver failure. And so uh, this is where patients can get sick and die and require liver transplants. And um, gosh, chronic liver disease is very difficult to deal with. I feel like it's something that we see a lot in the hospital um, mm -hmm. that hepatitis B and hepatitis C can lead to. Um, and I think one of the issues that you mentioned, you know, I don't, I don't know people that have hepatitis B um, in often these are down the road issues mm -hmm. that, that um, build up over time developing chronic liver disease. And so people don't necessarily, you don't see them and say, oh, that person has hepatitis right. B. There's not like a, an obvious sign. And so this is where yeah. um, they, they might not know they have hepatitis B either. And so I right. feel like we all have- It brings to up a really good point, Dr. Hankins. Um, mm -hmm. I know I've, I've told you guys this story before, but when I was practicing in a dental clinic, we saw a patient for a, a big oral surgery, full mouth extraction, bone surgery, the whole nine yards. And she didn't report anything on her health history. Two weeks later, we saw our daughter who reported that she had hep C to us. And we asked her, you know, where'd you get it? Are you being treated? Those sorts of things. And she said, well, my mom has it. I've had it since I was born. She passed it on to me. So we had just done this extensive surgery on her mother who had hepatitis C and didn't report it to us. Mm -hmm. 
So what were some of the things in the, the operative bay, basic standard precautions that you would like for somebody new to dentistry, Sarah, what were the things you were most happy in that moment you had done? I mean, you know, just general standard precautions will get you really far when you're doing any type of procedure. So, you know, making sure you have all of your barriers on everything in your operatory that you need to, um, making sure that all of your instruments are packaged and sterilized properly, making sure that everyone is wearing their PPE properly. Um, you know, I worked with a doctor who was really bad about wearing, he would take his uh, formed mask, he wore a formed cone mask, and he would just like put it on top of his head when he was done with the procedure and then go to his office and, and then he'd come back out and be like, no, no, get another mask. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you have to be, you really have to be cognizant about what's going on. Mm -hmm. um, I was lucky enough in that practice to work with another pair of dental assistants and we always would check each other. So after we did any sort of surgery and we would clean our operatory, I would call one of them to come in and double check and make sure every, they didn't see anything I missed. You know, so work with your teammates and, and have their back. If you see something going on or, um, you know, whatever. And sometimes it's, it's not done on purpose, right? Mm -hmm. You work on a procedure with all of these instruments and chemicals and dentistry, and eventually you're going to get a hole in your gloves. You know, if a doctor is laser focused on that tooth and what he's doing, they're not, may not see that hole in their gloves. So as an assistant, I would always, you know, nudge them and point it out. Don't make a big deal in front of the patient, but, you know, try and keep them safe mm -hmm. while we're doing this procedure. Right. It's really important thoughts about, you know, communicating with the team about, you know, hey, how about we change your gloves? You know, I have an, or I have a new pair of gloves ready to go for you. Mm -hmm. um, when we, we're talking a lot about bloodborne pathogens, and I think it's worthwhile to talk about there are other things that we can transmit um, between people's mouth and whatnot. And I think that um, it's easy to kind of assume things like, um, oh, I, I put those things in the ultrasonic, I washed them off, there's no blood on those things, so they're fine. Um, or I don't see any blood on the equipment, um, it must be fine. And so I think it's important to note, first of all, that bloodborne pathogens, they can be there, present, even in the absence of blood, but there's other things that can be spread via instruments, et cetera. Um, Dan, you were talking about uh, something that you had seen where they took uh, the air and water syringes, the really fine tip cannula, and somebody had cut them in half. Or Sarah, were you the one who talked about that article? That is definitely not something that I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyone out there in dentistry knows what I'm talking about when I say the air water syringe tips. Um, you know, they, we use them to spray air and water in the oral cavity when we're doing a procedure. And, um, you know, ideally you would want that to be a disposable single use item because the, the air and water that you spray through that. Um, you know, if you use a metal reusable tip, you can't clean inside of it. There is not a brush that's small enough for you to get in there and scrub it. You throw it in the ultrasonic cleaner with everything else that you've used throughout the day. And that gets inside there and basically lives in there as it goes through the autoclave. And, you know, you get buildup 
in there. And I've seen practices use those things for years until they get clogged. And once they're clogged, you know, it's really bad. But there was a really good article where somebody had actually cut one in half that was used and you can just see how uh, gross it is. There's a lot of biofilm buildup in there. And a lot of different things can grow in biofilm. Um, you know, there was, there have been outbreaks with Legionella from dental unit water lines. Um, there was one in a pediatric office that they had um, mycobacterium infections, you know, like 70 something kids ended up with these huge abscesses. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't necessarily something that the dental practice was um, intentionally doing wrong. They just weren't maintaining their water lines like they should have been and nobody knew any different. And eventually enough of that biofilm built up and infected some people. Right, and biofilms are really difficult in infection prevention to address. And I think the, to explain that to people maybe who are new on the call, a biofilm, it makes like a hard shell of organisms around live organisms that even if you were to brush past it or heat sterilize it or something like that, that outer shell may protect live pathogens inside. And so it would make our usual forms of disinfection less effective. Um, and we see this in lots of different types of um, uh, tools and things that go into patients all across healthcare. Um, the other thing was um, the hand pieces, right? The hand pieces should be sterilized. Yeah, hand pieces should be heat sterilized between every patient. And, um, you know, I've heard stories from um, one of the, the dental inspectors that would go out on like infection control breach reports. And um, he would talk to doctors and say, how often do you sterilize that hand piece right there? And the doctor would say something like, oh, that comes off. Like right. it's, it's never, <laughs> we just wipe it uh -oh. down. That um, seems scary. <laughs> it, yeah. Uh, so really whatever equipment you're using, make sure you're following those manufacturer's instructions on how to sterilize and disinfect it properly. Um, there is a lot of opportunity for, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Suck back, the water suck back into the lines, right? Backflow. Use, mm -hmm. backflow yes. Um, with like our um, saliva ejectors, the little suctions they use when they clean your teeth, you know, they always tell you to wrap your mouth around it like kiss the straw to suck all that stuff, you could get backflow in there. Um, so that happens with those, with the hand pieces, that water that flows through there and into the patient's mouth, you can get backflow back into the hand pieces. So there are a lot of different opportunities for, I guess, waterborne illnesses. And so I think like one of the, the points we're making is even if you haven't seen these infections occur in your practice, it's really important to understand that just because you haven't seen it does not mean that they don't happen. And so for us, you know, we're affiliated with an academic medical center. And so it's very normal for us to go back and look for, you know, outbreaks associated with a certain type of instrument or to go through medical literature to look at like outbreaks that have been reported. And like Dr. Hankins um, has said, that's uh, that's the tip of the iceberg. That's the ones that get reported. And so I would caution, you know, folks on the call that just because you haven't seen it does not, does not mean that it hasn't occurred. These things are well described in the medical literature, um, including 
outbreaks associated with dental hand pieces, outbreaks associated with air and water syringes, um, outbreaks associated with needle sticks in dentistry. Those are all well-described points that there have been transmission events associated with those things. Um, it, it's a fact, it's a medical fact that those things have been figured out. And so that is why we have um, national tools that guide what are the safe ways to do things. And one of those really important tools is the CDC checklist um, for the basic expectations for safe care in dentistry. That I have to look up what the exact word is. I didn't say I that. That sounds right. And so I think that, that that would be a good tool if people are like maybe thinking to themselves, I'm kind of overwhelmed. I've got to do this. I've got to do that. It's a really important checklist to pull down and say like, that's why CDC has made that checklist. If you do these things, that should prevent these outbreaks occurring um, in your practice. Yeah, that's a really great tool. Um, the CDC also has a checklist app you can get for iOS. So for like an iPad or an iPhone. Um, it's called the CDC Dental Check app, and it is meant to be um, kind of like our iCard tool, so our infection control assessment and response tool, and it just goes through all of these things. You can check yes or no. You can take notes. We need to change this and this, and then you can do it again in a year, and it will kind of give you some data on where your office is and, you know, some progress in there. I think the, the way you could interact with ICAP, for example, is say you do that checklist and you find some barriers. It would be very normal to find some barriers. I don't understand this recommendation. I'm not sure what my next step is. Or I've run into somebody in my practice who um, I can't convince them that this needs to happen. Those would be great points to interact with us and reach out for some assistance. Um, and we have the website um, at Nebraska ICAP. And we also have our phone number. 402-552-2881, that you could be connected to one of us IPs who have worked for a long time in implementing these processes and kind of work through those barriers and next steps. So, I mean, if, if a, a, I have a couple of takeaways in, in that if, if I'm hearing this conversation and, and understanding everything correctly, it appears that infection control was a problem in dentistry. Um, it's still a challenge in dentistry, um, but it's not as big of a problem as it once was. Uh, there have been a lot of advancements. There's been a lot more research. And with the training, with the checklist from the CDC, with uh, all of the additional PPE, that dentistry has made quite a, a number of strides in improving uh, infection control. And that's maybe why you're not seeing things in the news um, you know, as like you did in, in the 1980s. And then, uh, you know, my second takeaway is uh, my, my idea, my money-making idea of selling, uh, you know, kiss me, I have hepatitis, probably, <laughs> uh, you know, making those shirts, probably not a, a, a huge money-making uh, venture at this point, but, you know, I'll keep searching. We could do a, a t-shirt that says, come look at my herpetic Whitlow. <laughs> Everybody has one of those shirts, Sarah. <laughs> oh, nice. Dr. Hankins, Dr. Fadul, do you have any last minute thoughts you'd like to add? Yeah, just wash your hands and wear your gloves and wear your mask and stay protected. Yeah, and like Kate said before, if you guys have any questions or are coming up to barriers with infection control in your office or you just don't know, feel free to reach out to us and we're happy to be a resource.
special thanks to our excellent panel. What a, what a great conversation. We'll look forward to seeing you again on the next podcast. Thank you for spending time with us learning about infection prevention and control in the dental setting. If you have questions you would like the team to chat about, feel free to call our ICAP Infection Control Hotline at 402-552-2881 or visit our website at icap.nebraskamed.com. Look for our next Mouthy IP podcast episode and don't forget to stay chatty about infection control in your office.